0: Welcome, welcome, welcome! How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Coon. Focus Compounding sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how goes it? Uh, it goes very well, Andrew. Very well. Glad to hear that. We hope it's going well for everybody else uh, as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in, hit that subscribe button. Follow me on Twitter at Focus Compound. Uh, go to FocusCompounding.com. Jeff actually uploaded a uh, investment write up yesterday. Um, and to get access to that, you could go to Focus Compounding, the company Kingstone Companies, yeah. a homeowner's insurance company focused on selling through agents in downstate New York. It's so a riveting we, title. Yeah. And you just <laughs> another one. I was like, yeah, he's, he's. I asked you in the last podcast um, where you've been spending out. a lot of uh, yeah. a lot of your time. And the, I'm like, yeah. yeah, he really is spending
1: a lot of time I have on financials. Every other plan right up is some sort of financial right now. Really? From alternating it. Yeah, when I did when I did the uh, newsletter that I did that, the Avid Hog and Singular Diligence, when I did that, I had a policy of always alternating. mm mm-hmm. Because we had some people who wouldn't buy banks no matter what. And I had a lot of bank write-ups. So I had to alternate month to month so they wouldn't feel like they're getting ripped off with their uh, subscription stuff. Because, you know, it would come in the mail if it was one after another. You know, the PDF would come in. And if it was like one bank after another after another, they'd be like, this isn't the newsletter for me. Yeah, so like this switch a them off. This is banking one, right? Yeah, switch them off. So, it, yes, I have planned for a while that probably every other one you're going to see or, or something like that will probably be a financial. Because I've got a much longer list of financials than I have non-financials right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: got it. Cool. Well, if that's uh, is that a market call? What what is that?
1: <laughs> Just shows you where we are in the market with interest rates. I, mean, I, like I run that. screens Industries. and look for certain things and read uh, certain um, lists of all sorts of companies. Uh, you know, we focus on smaller companies, so there are more small financials. Probably, you know, there's small mm-hmm. banks especially, but small insurers too that are interesting that way. Um, one industry you have highlighted, their investors title of the company. I, I'm going to be doing like a bunch of different title insurers over a while because they are um similar you know and it would be interesting to look at them each that way
0: it's funny whenever i run the screen there's mm-hmm. a thing on there that tells me when the last time you ran the screen yeah so do you notice when i last ran this no i too? don't look at the, uh, so yeah. i know like oh jeff ran the screen yesterday or two yeah. days ago or
1: well whatever yeah i actually designed the screen to di- to divide up things between financials and non-financials for mm-hmm. something because uh the screen was returning almost all financials mm-hmm and it was probably 50% banks, um, small banks, and things like that. But that's mostly because uh, of the size or the overlooked part of what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, that tends to turn up a lot of smaller banks and things because there's like thousands, um, or there were at one point. Um, whereas, you know, that's not as common in, in other industries. That some of the bigger, more successful things are are better known. And not as overlooked and stuff. So it's there's more um, purely regional things. Yeah, mm-hmm. Got
0: it. Cool. So in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about a topic that I think is uh, uh, going to help out a lot of people. One that I think is pretty interesting. And it's really... This act of asking the right questions, okay. and I think people underestimate the skill of asking questions. And if you want to, you know, find out better quality information, you should really think about you know the quality of the questions that you're asking. And to relate this to investing, we're going to talk a little bit about it in relation to management. We could talk about you know management, the board, stuff like okay. that. Um, but in every single investment, I would say that there's you know few key variables or factors that really matter to the investment case right? right if you could distill yeah. it down to that um and it's really you know understanding and thinking through different ways um you know just to learn about the business and stuff and you know learn about management so we're going to go through and talk um you know about how we typically do that because especially in micro cap land okay. i would say the management you invest with is probably one of the most important factors in microcaps. Yes. The business, of course, industry, of course. But if there's a close third, it would certainly, if not higher, I would say the importance of it is right there, uh, is the quality of the management team that you're investing with and their view towards um, you know, costs, um, capital allocation, their industry, their business, stuff like that.
1: Yes, uh, because they can have more influence on a smaller uh, organization, certainly. And uh, also, I'd say the combination of owner-operator may happen more often with these very small companies. Um, You're less likely to have professional management with a strong board and stuff like that. And uh, also, to some extent, we focus on really overlooked stuff. You tend to have less um, going private, going public again, going private, those sorts of things. So you're more likely to get a stock that um, your return comes over time from being in the stock as a public company and not from some sort of extraordinary transaction or something like that. So that makes that makes management more important, you know, mm-hmm. if you're getting a your return from the business results over a period of years. Yeah. What do you think is the average tenure of uh, a
0: CEO of a large company? Five years. Yeah, I think it's like four and a half, five okay. years. I wonder what it would be in microcaps. I'd imagine probably probably longer.
1: So, I mean, it depends on what microcaps you're talking about. Some of them don't. Because if not, then the the company probably just The entire out. company doesn't <laughs> stay. I mean, yeah. uh, if we look at like you were listed on OTC and you're not anymore, um, that sort of thing, the the amount of time, um, the churn is very high. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So entire companies and stuff might fail a lot of times or fail. They they were, you know, they're no longer traded actively and stuff
0: because something happened. Mm -hmm. So a lot of questions that I get and, uh, you know, we're part of all these different message boards and stuff like that, too. It's always like, you know, how do you approach management and ask them certain questions? It's like if you're doing the research, you generally understand uh, the business, the products, the economics of everything, right? So when you're going to speak with management, I mean, what are you typically trying to get out of them? I mean, are there any sort of questions and things that you, um, you know, want to ask them? Is it really just their how they think about their business? Is it really, um, you know, capital allocation? I mean, what sort of questions are you trying to get out of them when you're having these conversations with them?
1: Uh, well, like what kind of person they are, first of all. How do they think about their business? Um, and... How do they think about their future there? Things like that actually are some of the biggest ones because it's not going to be very important to me if they're going to be gone soon. So, you know, if I think they're going to be there for a really long time or not uh, is one of them. And then, um, yeah, their sort of motivations, I think, are probably the most important, what they think they're doing and why they think they're doing it, Um, how they would sort of measure success or not, things like that. But those aren't questions I would ask directly of them. There's something that should come out in mm. terms of, you know, as they talk about stuff. So of that, I mean, what do you think are successful traits of successful managers? So based on the investing that I've done and trying to look at like what was successful, it's weird. Um, second career, very likely to be successful. So this isn't the first time that you've done this or... Um, uh, or you just chose to start to to uh, buy up a company or to start a company or something like that. That has tended to be very successful. Um, so that's one of them, I would say. Uh, founder-led things sometimes. Uh, it depends. There's cases where I'd say it's like a refounder. I think they both sort of work the same way. Um, so, you know, th- those are the big ones that I, I found. Um, I wonder
0: how much of that is almost like a pre-selection, right? So you're looking at the manager and they've been successful in the past. So it's easy to analyze and, and judge them based on what they have done in the past.
1: Well, actually, it's usually someone coming from something not quite the same. Interesting. Okay, so if you have see if you're exactly in the industry and you came up through the industry, that can be a problem because you don't know all the stupid things that everyone just keeps doing because they it's the received wisdom of that's what you do. Mm-hmm. But I see if you you ran a business or were, um, um or were at the very high levels of a business or invested in things that were a little um, adjacent to it, then when you come into that specific situation, you're going to apply those ideas you learned from somewhere else to it. And uh, that's where I really see a lot of success. Yeah, which you wouldn't think would be the case. You know, people will always say like, I want someone with experience in that industry or whatever. Um, as long as Jason adjacent industries, but that's usually what people say, you know, that they, we need someone who is an expert in that sort of thing. You know, if you read write-ups of the Value Investors Club or whatever, that's always what they want is to poach someone from another company that was in the exact same business. And then they come in and they, they do things um, that turn stuff around. But actually what I found is um, people who are just pretty good business people um, going into a specific industry and taking a sort of somewhat different approach than others did.
0: I mean, it's like Hunter Harrison. With railroads, right?
1: Well, so that's interesting because he was completely railroads. That's all that he did. Yeah, and from a very low level in them on up. Uh, but taking the same idea and applying it to railroad after railroad. Now, I think the reason for why that was possible, and we've talked a little bit about this, is I think there's certain industries where ideas don't travel that well between them, the different companies in them, because see if that was retail and he had applied those ideas. Um, every retailer would copy him because yeah. they'd have to just stay in business. But railroads are pretty well protected. So um, they just made less money than the railroads that he uh, that applied a lot of his ideas. But that happened before, like 100 years before the chairman. So if you're making some money, you're not going broke, you're paying your bills on time, mm-hmm. uh, then you would just say, well, it, it works for that railroad, but not for us. Whereas like in things like retail and stuff like that, they would steal your customers away. But... In the modern railroading industry, it's pretty hard for people to take your customers. It's like restaurants, for example. Anyone could go eat at your restaurant. Anyone can go see what you're pricing it at. Anyone Mm -hmm. could go see what you're serving. And copy those ideas. And I also think there's a strong incentive for them, too, because it's pretty easy for a restaurant or retailer or something to start failing if you move in and start taking their business. Um, But I've said before with certain banks, insurance things and stuff, I do think that sometimes there's a better way to do things and it doesn't get transmitted through the industry as well. Uh, Because you would kind of do okay doing what you're doing. You know and there's big ways that you can improve but you're making money every year Mm -hmm.
0: what are your thoughts on managers learning about investing i feel like the best type of managers i come across and of course you have to weed out the certain buzzwords and the buffett you know tone that they like to present and stuff like that but i'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on that um i mean buffett has always said he's a better businessman because he's an investor and a better investor because he's a businessman yeah i would think that's true for many people And I generally speaking, when I speak or, you know, speak to managers or, you know, read transcripts, I do like to hear just the way that they think about it. And if they think about their business, very similar to the way that we would think about their business.
1: Yeah. So at the very top, that that can be good. Right. To think about like an investor. So I think you have that owner mindset. Um, However, they then need to have people to do their dirty work who have a personality that matches with what they'll be doing. And Buffett's very good at that, getting other people to do things that he would never do. Um, So the person who can be the right person to do that could be very different. Um, You know, uh, when Geico was on the brink, uh, Buffett is not the one who turned it around. And he himself could never have done that uh, because he doesn't have the personality type that would have been needed. Now, once Geico was back on its feet and successful, then, you know, Buffett would have been a fine CEO of Geico. But the person needed to have that kind of turnaround is it would not be someone like him. It Was like the
0: whole thing with Salman. He came in there as interim CEO, yep. and it was when Salman was very publicly going through, you know, right. issues, and he came in as almost like the White Knight <laughs> to try to put like a happy face on the company or try to change things. And if he didn't come in, who knows what would have happened to the company.
1: Yeah, that, so that brings up something because of the Solomon thing. He always talks about uh, the speed with which people tell him bad news and stuff. That's probably the biggest concern that I have when talking to people at a company management or whatever. If they're if they're listening to this, they can figure out what thing to make sure is a red flag not to tell me. Um, moving slowly on something that they know to be a problem. So just in business generally and all sorts of things it's besides life. business, um, people often know that something is a problem and they move far too slowly on it. Uh, they often say that they think it might get better and stuff like that and kind of trick themselves into that, um, without moving on that problem and moving very quickly. Buffett talks about inertia, even in very small organizations that, that is the thing that I see the most is inertia on those sorts of things. But where's the fine line between having a long-term mindset and not succumbing
0: to inertia?
1: Well, that's fine. Having a long-term mindset. I mean, I think Amazon has a long-term mindset.
0: Long-term judging over the long-term.
1: Oh, I see what you mean. Us judging over the long term and not thinking about the short term results.
0: Yeah. And but also not eating your own cooking with the way you're kind of drinking the Kool-Aid and not acting rationally. Is it like really come from, um, you know, not uh, moving away from uh, disconfirming evidence? I mean, what are your thoughts towards that?
1: Oh, yeah. No, when I mean the inertia thing, I, I mean like um, sometimes I think I can hear in their voice or whatever you want to put it that the Someone, how they describe a business unit or something means that the head of that unit won't be there next year, but they haven't gotten rid of them yet. And probably they know in some part of them that they should get rid of them and they haven't done it yet. Um, That may be the same for exiting certain kinds of businesses and stuff like that. I mean, you can carefully consider whether you want to do something um, or not, take a different path on it. But a lot of companies do things um, slower than they need to be done very slow on a lot of stuff I and mean, buffett was speaking specifically about legal sorts of things which i need to move very fast on but just problems in general uh, problems come very slowly um now i've miscalculated on some of those things you know I, i've mentioned before i didn't invest in a bank because everything i was good about it i liked it except for i thought they were moving too slowly to recognize some losses and of course they may have been doing that they internally mm. were um taking it very seriously but not uh and putting on a more optimistic face to shareholders and stuff and they work through it but if the same exact company had um, very quickly taken some losses and stuff and uh, or built reserves and you know in the case of some insurance companies and things that I see um, then I might invest with them. Uh, I would have in that case it was purely that I was that you're concerned you know Buffett says about there's never just one cockroach in the kitchen um, that if you think they should be doing something faster to recognize some past mistakes and they're not, that is a little bit more of an issue. Mm-hmm. So sometimes like with an insurance thing or something, if someone's talking to me about it and their thinking might be, okay, well, how much do you think this adverse claim development will be? And let's try to like just um, throw out some numbers and think about it and adjust my valuation that way. That might be the way they're talking. But to me, it's more of, okay, well, why are the, why, you know, what does this go to in terms of management in the organization and stuff that we have this? versus some other insurers that were in the exact same position and have um don't have that kind of uh, reserve development and what does that mean about other stuff in the organization over time and those Mm. things and so with a very simple company maybe that might not be a problem but with a more complex company there's lots of things they know about the company that i don't and can't possibly predict and i would worry that they're uh, too slow to act on a lot of negative news that way. I'm just worried uh, that people in the organization aren't bringing bad news up the chain fast enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are your thoughts towards boards and
0: judging the quality of boards? Just the, you know, um, who's on the board, their incentives, stuff like that. The
1: opposite of a lot of people, probably. Okay. So I, like I hate to see boards that are all independent uh, directors that... Um, uh, I, won't, I won't, there was a company I was looking at. I'm definitely not going to say what it is and stuff because this person's probably a lovely person who's uh, who just joined the board, but they checked every single box of what I don't want to see, right? Okay. So they were added to it because the board wanted to add ESG stuff. So they added this uh, person who has background in those sorts of okay. things, right? Okay. Um, then they also went to the right schools, yeah. right? Okay, for that. And then they also had... Um, you know, whatever it was, the right charity things and those sorts of things. It also added uh, the pedigrees there, basically. Yeah. And also a beauty contest before the board. Right. And also may have added some diversity and things like the age and and being outside the industry in that way. But this is someone who we will see. But everything about it um, suggests they may not be a a strong voice on the board Mm -hmm. because they're being added to fill in one particular issue that they have that way. Um, my preference would be for someone who is, um, honestly, someone who's rich because that way they're not counting on being paid, mm-hmm. um, for high director fees. Let's say, like did that.
0: this person or this individual, are they earning director fees? They seem fees? like a professional director right now. Got it. So they sit on a bunch
1: of boards and I've always, they heard. were a former consultant, yeah. former, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, yeah, they sit on a bunch of boards now. They they I'm sure they work to get named to those boards
0: and things. I get on my get the soapbox out for this because I always talk about this how like, you know, through the 1800s, you know, Carnegie, Rockefeller, uh, you know, J.P. Morgan, right. sort of this era, the boards are much more owned by owners of the company,
1: right? Right. And, and some bad things happened to the outside investors yeah sometimes yeah it depends on who it was if you had an honorable person in that kind of position then that didn't happen but it very much depended on the personalities the people involved and you had to know whether these were trustworthy people or not, yeah. But yeah. they
0: also had enormous skin in the game, is what right. I'm saying. Yes. And, and as like- you know, the democratization of investing in 1900s and certainly into you know 2020s uh, or whatever you know past whatever you want to call it, uh, the boards have just become much more professionally managed. Where you have people that mm-hmm. sit on a bunch of boards, they earn their director fees. They, it's like how ingrained are they actually in the business? I don't know how much are they just a, a puppet there for whoever and they're just professional board sitters and i just i don't necessarily know if that's right for the shareholders quite frankly i don't know right. if that's right for the company i don't know i just i i do know that i don't like it and it's become much more of a thing
1: yeah uh and so that that's sort of a problem that i would agree with those sorts of things that i see also you know someone who's they are to add, um, whether it's some reputation or some sorts of things like that. We've talked about frauds and things like that. There are certain people that you name to boards and things to give sort of the halo effect of, um, mm-hmm. of them being on your board sort of as a, uh, a good housekeeping seal sort of thing. Um, I just hate when people, you
0: know, companies, whatever, they do things for the wrong reasons. So okay. in inviting certain people on your board, for example, because it checks all these boxes that actually don't have to deal with, you know, driving shareholder value
1: right and there's lots of people who could have checked a lot of those boxes that they didn't want i mean that's the other thing i again in this example that i'm giving you can also tell that they picked someone who is uh they'll be able to get along with but who on paper seems to check all these boxes mm-hmm. right they didn't actually pick someone who's going to be a real problem for them from an esg approach when they're not very good on that um you know which is usually the case because they're naming who the directors are and they're going to be people who are um People that they can get along with that check those boxes, generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not a huge deal sometimes, but occasionally it is a big deal. Um, I, you've read Disney War. Uh, I was just reading a book about Tyco recently and stuff. There are some very weak directors in some cases on those. And, and it becomes a bigger issue on some of the committees that they're on and stuff like that. And things that the um, company is is dealing with. Um, certain transactions and compensation, things and stuff. But in general, you know, in terms of like, say, executive compensation or stuff, you really have to be protected or not from excessive compensation by the thinking of the CEO, not by the thinking of the board. Uh, if the CEO sticks around long enough, he's going to get the board he wants, and they're going to give him the money he wants. But if he has a certain sense of um, stewardship or whatever, or at least some amount of shame or something, then he's only going to take so much money, um, those sorts of things yeah so how would you judge the board then really is
0: it just uh, you know the, their their history the type of fees they're taking I mean are they even taking director fees? are they already rich like you said um, Is it like why are they there? I
1: mean how would you typically think about that? Sure so there's a couple of different things that you see sometimes right So sometimes you can have a chairman who's the former CEO you can have a chairman who's a huge shareholder or something like that uh, people who are from a founding family things like that that are special um, situations that way. Um, you can also have the the worst ones I've ever seen are very strong chairman and uh, yeah a very proactive sort of chairman thing very rare in the United States much more common in the UK run across a couple times didn't like the situation but the chairman is involved in, in like the actual business operations yes Doesn't like disagreement the between the chairman and the CEO on strategy stuff mm-hmm. led to sales of things that probably didn't need to be sold or the chairman leaving or the CEO leaving or whatever yeah it's because you have a two people that are both trying to um, decide what to do that way. And um, yeah, sometimes, yeah, and it, those are the most, um, whatever, dysfunctional, whatever you want to say things. What itself. do you think the role of the chairman is then? Mm, depends on the company. I mean, the, the role of the board and stuff, it depends on the company. Even when I do these write-ups of stuff, um, I'll sometimes mention people that I consider to be key in some way, but it's I'm not going to mention every director, um, but... Um sometimes I'll mention someone that I think this is like probably the most important director who isn't a member of the inside group on this or something but but obviously people who are investors from early on people who are connected to um, the CEO or chairman or whoever could be important people in controlling groups um, stuff like that and then you try to get a sense of it but it you know it's usually not formal relationships that are the reason for how strong someone is on, on something like that and then of course there's issues about um Certain things make it difficult to have uh, the boards that you would want just because of how demanding it is um, in terms of time and risk to reputation, all that kind of thing. So certain parts of the board would be different than other parts. Um, you've seen that banks are often, uh, have two separate groups inside the board and, and one group is going to be a lot easier to find people um to do because it's a lot less work um your audit committee is going to be a lot harder to find people to be on that than is going to be the board generally so things like that and that's a lot of that since sarbanes oxley mm-hmm. how do you think buffett thinks about you know the structure of the board hates serving on boards Yep. um doesn't feel that he did a good job probably on boards or did much of anything i mean and why is that do you think he he just thought it was more of a because you're usually more effective by not being on the board and having influence with people think about it he wasn't on, on tom murphy's board and you know probably uh tom murphy got a lot more use out of having buffett not on his board than on his board for a long time uh you know before the cap Cities deal and stuff he was on um washington post so he couldn't be on um murphy's board but um yeah i think that's true i mean i think he wanted to be on uh
0: k graham's board yes yeah, so he, he didn't come out and say it but he owned
1: whatever 10% of the company she didn't put her on the board and she was yeah of course but what do you think his motive was to that which is to really help kay and influence in there sure and that was the biggest influence that he had there mm-hmm. and was very effective um but i think in a lot of ways uh you could be more effective by not being on the board and having a good relationship with someone um than, uh than having an official capacity of that sort of thing sure and we don't know a lot about that sometimes, um, you know, and, and there's been some situations where I've seen things where, uh, you know, the, the fact that the board wasn't very strong in some ways was helpful because you had someone who's really effective, um, who was able to basically have... To do more in terms of guiding things for the company than they otherwise would have just by how much stock they own and stuff mm-hmm. and um, you know I've, there's some situations where I've seen that well it's kind of like with GameStop right now Ryan Cohen the right.
0: founder of Chewy mm-hmm. he is now the chairman of the board of
1: GameStop I believe yeah so you also have things where and there's a lot of people like how the heck did that happen well when you well, bought a massive stake in the no, company no boards are interesting So so boards n- normally seem to work much like I've said on the, um, you know, given the quote about the uh, currency devaluation thing, you know, um, we're not going to devalue the currency, we're not going to devalue the currency. And then in the middle of the night, you yeah, announce the devalue the currency. currency yeah. uh, usually, you don't, people talk about these dissidents on the board and stuff. That's not usually how it works. It's more like, uh, you know, someone in parliament or something forming a government. Um, once you know that you're not wanted there and stuff, you'll have mass resignation of that group and then turn over to the next group. Sometimes things will be agreed on and whatever, but basically that's what you're dealing with. Uh, the The board mostly is not a place for uh, disagreements between them the way that you would have in a shareholder vote, a proxy fight. Um, so normally that's not how it would work. Um And I think that's very difficult, actually. We've talked about that with some companies and things. uh, Having dissidents on the board or having the board almost half controlled by some people and and half uh, legacy people. I think that can be very tough Um, and not a good atmosphere for making decisions because they're really collective responsibility, group decision-making for the board. Mm -hmm. is how it works. Um, So you really... They don't want to say it, but what they need to say is, okay, half of us have to leave and half of us have to stay. Who's it going to be? Because we're totally at odds with each other, yeah. but we're half the board each, or, or even if it's two people on a seven-person board or something, that's going to be a problem. Um, they're going to have votes, but they're not going to be trusted or anything else and all that. So I think those are always difficult. But, you know, Valley Investors Club, Corner, Berkshire, Fairfax, those things would like that kind of situation because something might happen. It certainly might increase the chances that something will be sold or something like that or that there will be a changeover. But in a sense, that's not a settled board. It's in flux between things. You're not going to stay with participants on it indefinitely. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes I agree with them, but I don't think that them doing what they're doing is going to get results a lot of the time. So usually they own too few shares. And uh, it would be an expensive proxy fight and stuff like that. And then once you do that, you're fighting over stuff from the past and not moving on the way that you need to be and all that. And then you sometimes, and this is really bad, have people who are important as managers who are serving on the board or who own a lot of stock or something in a private group that would not want to stay in a change in control. And, um, or even just dissidents, you know, winning a proxy fight of some kind um and that's really bad you you know you can't lose those people so i've seen companies like that where they're not a a particularly honest person and stuff but they certainly know how to run the company and i'm not sure that uh, i wouldn't want to invest with them because of how dishonest they are but i also wouldn't want to invest in the company once they're thrown out because no one is left who knows how to do uh how to run the business that's pretty common with tiny companies Mm-hmm. Not common with big companies. Not like a lot of depth. No, there's no one else at the company. It, sometimes there's one person who runs everything and then there's people who know how to do certain jobs, but they're certainly not managers. Yeah, they're not CEOs. Mm-hmm. So there's no one to replace them. So what do you think the role of a CEO is? Um. So it depends on the company. Uh, sometimes we're talking about really uh, a... Sp- uh, the superstar CEO thing, who is really someone who combines um, an owner operator type mentality, even if they don't own a lot of the stock, that's often the situation that we're talking about, whether there is officially chairman, lead director, whatever, they're not uh, doing a lot of the things that people think of um, as sort of uh, driving strategy and stuff like that. So that's the most common one. And um, although there are some that are, don't have a strong position um, because of the the board things that we talked about and stuff. So they own almost no stock. They were brought in, they're professionals, and there are the people who do own a bunch of stock. That's different. Uh, you know, at a very big company and stuff, then they bring in a professional, you know, over time, the, they're going to have a lot of control. Um, so I think that, you know, that's the difference between a CEO and a CEO. really, that we're talking about there, is all that strategic decision-making of uh, primarily capital allocation, uh, pretty broadly defined and stuff, doing many of the same jobs that we think of as Warren Buffett doing. But then in addition to that, they're also running a business, um, which is something that Buffett does not do. He does not run any of the business units. And so it's a really a combination of that with uh, the sorts of things that he does. And so when you're talking about what makes a good CEO and stuff, some of the things that you're talking about are really, a lot of it is capital allocation stuff and things like that, which is really key. And Buffett talked about that in uh, one of his uh, letters, I guess, where you know he talked about how they have all these skills from all this other stuff they do but until they get to the top at the company they really haven't been taught anything about capital allocation so it's the one thing that they may not know a lot about and then you suddenly figure out if they how good they are at it or not mm-hmm. so yeah because if they got to the top they
0: are you know probably the charisma and they played the game well they played the politics well and now they're going to allocate a bunch of capital and do a bunch of different things and it's just a different skill
1: set yeah, it's Muppets a huge, talk about that a huge issue at very big organizations. Mm-hmm. You read the book Lights Out, right? You yeah. read some books on G? Yeah. yeah. None of the, they have no idea until, they, it's completely different. The people who are running things inside G are not in a position to go um, run, to be CEO of something without other people there to help them on those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's because that's not the kind of thinking that that organization did um, at the business unit level. Um, so that's the scary thing that can happen is they could be very good at running a business, you know, but then suddenly when they're doing M and a at the top of GE, um, not good things are happening. It's just interesting when you think about different CEOs
0: though, like you could think about like Steve jobs, for example, mm-hmm. and he was very big on being very much in the creative process of yep. the prod of the projects and the products and everything very like Walt that. Disney. Yeah. Very much. Thing. Very yeah. much. And then Steve Jobs or Tim cook, it sounds like he is still, but he seemed more to me like a professional manager. I think he was more like operations and stuff like that. But he's also, though, done a pretty good job when it comes to capital allocation, I would say. Some people would say no, that he hasn't. And they should have bought Tesla and bought uh, Netflix and all these other things. But um, it's just interesting the different types of CEOs that people have. Because I doubt, I mean, maybe Jobs was, but to me he was very much in the creative process and then you can look at you know mark zuckerberg for example he's very much it sounds like i mean there's emails that get leaked all the time of him buying instagram and you know it was fascinating reading like his thought process to why they should purchase instagram and all these different things like that it's very much seems like capital
1: allocation yeah and and strategy competitive strategy and stuff like that absolutely yeah similar to um bill gates Mm yeah um yeah i mean it I, I would, you know, the Steve Jobs thing. Steve Jobs worked as far as he, he was with the company, but there would have come a point that it could have been an issue. So, was there going to be enough room for him to do what he wanted to do indefinitely? Um, you know, but then he died. Uh, Walt well, Disney died at an early enough point, also, um, that the company didn't expand to a size that it would have become a real problem of dealing with other sorts of things. Um, you know, one way or the other, they are going to have fairly low growth at some point. And so I don't know how much he would have been able to do uh, differently. Someone was going to have to make decisions about capital allocation stuff that we're talking about. And apparently, I mean, he talked to Buffett about it. That was his Buffett said that, yeah. Yeah, he knew he should buy back the stock, but he didn't do it. Yeah. So that gives you some idea of his capital allocation stuff and some of the things that could have been a problem. That he could have known I should really do this and not do it. But he seems like the kind of person that that might have happened. Yeah, uh, It would have been hard for him to buy back stock. Why is that? Because he just sees it as
0: capital. An that admission
1: he could, that you know, you don't have something to do with it and you're doing this purely Transitioning into a more mature thing. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Not yeah. less, you could call it like less
1: innovative state. Yeah, it could be. A lot of people, you know, I think in their heart, don't like the idea of buying back stock. We might not mind it as investors and things, and Buffett might not, but a lot of people don 't think about it that way. Eventually, they may come around to that seeing things from a different perspective, but you know that 's not necessarily what a lot of people who are entrepreneurial get into something to do is the financial engineering aspects of it um, you know they're, they're, they would like to sell more every year, they would like to you know employ right. more people, they would like to do all those things that they 've thought about. Um, and they measure it in a lot of ways besides just financial gain for people. Yeah, you know, that's a side effect of it. And they think it might, it will come to people who are successful in these other ways, but it's not something that they necessarily want to focus on that way. And you can see that with Buffett too. I mean, look how slow he's been to buy back his stock, you know, for, for years and, and, uh, or to, you know, pay out capital or something like that. And that's because he really likes allocating capital himself. So giving that away to someone else is, you know, difficult that way. So Do you ever see small microcaps buy back a lot of their stock? I feel like the only
0: situations I have has typically been when somebody else either takes control or comes in. It's like an investor or a hedge fund manager. That's when they start to do all these different things. To do the
1: buybacks and stuff. Yeah. Um, I've seen some, I guess, do some buybacks. I'm trying to think of ones that did very big buybacks for a long time. Uh, it seems less likely. I mean, obviously, it would be harder because of liquidity purposes, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that is a hard one. I don't know how many times there have been founders and people like that who are willing to buy back their own stock. Often, it's someone later on um, who makes that decision. Yeah.
0: How do you think CEOs sh- should be compensated, especially in, like, microcap land?
1: mm because you know
0: the th- the problem is it's is it's expensive to be a public company. Yeah, if you have overhead, you're a smaller company, so it's SG&A is usually a pretty big percentage of uh, the cost structure, or expenses. So I'm curious when you look at a company, um, you know, what are your thoughts towards that? How the CEO and uh, key people are compensated?
1: I mean, you know, you could guess that I would like. Low guaranteed salaries, high bonuses paid all in cash based on simple mathematical things of what targets, uh, not what targets are hit, but you know, just purely on a metric, no caps on them or anything like that. The way that most companies do it, I don't like a lot of the aspects of it. They're capped, which defeats the whole purpose um, of incentives it reminds yeah.
0: me of uh the office when jim doesn't he like met his quota for the and he has like whatever it is mm-hmm. five years or five months left and he's like you do realize you just removed my incentive to sell for the rest of the year right and right like yeah and
1: he's like okay <laughs> he yeah like the company i just wrote about has a plan that basically um as the bonus changes in amount for people when they earn between six and fourteen percent return on equity um, e- excluding certain investment result things, so really based on the underwriting stuff. but um you know the difference between like losing money and six percent is meaningful and you could earn more than fourteen percent too. so I don't know why you'd want to get rid of the um incentives in each of those cases um, you, you know between a moderate level of earnings um you know six to fourteen percent is a pretty typical sort of range that. I mean, honestly, if you just looked at all sorts of different insurance companies, just that's kind of the kind of dispersion pattern you'd expect. So I don't think it's great that way to do it. Um, lots of them pick particular targets for certain things and add in a bunch of other targets for stuff that they want them to do. Um, so yeah, but I think tying it to some specific things is best. I mean, yeah, I think that that, that's the best approach. Uh, a lot of the other things they don't think they need to be incentivized about. So I think it makes sense to incentivize people about stuff where it might really make a difference and not incentivize them for stuff they're going to do anyway. And I've kind of said this before with um, the way that we do things and stuff like that. Um, you know, there, in, in investment management stuff, there's always going to be huge incentives to grow your AUM. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there's always going to be huge incentives to uh, to be seen to do well, right? So it's not like... Taking only profits um, should be thought of as a big incentive for people to um, focus on outperforming others. That may be true, uh, but you're going to find that most people wouldn't get into that kind of business to underperform other people and stuff like that and to do a to a job that's not that good that way. Um, but see if you change the incentives on like uh, which of a couple products you were selling you know uh where say the company's margins are much better on one kind of product than another then you could really tweak how someone does something um so i I think that it it, you know it does depend on those sorts of things um and that a bunch of times there people are kind of over incentivized for certain things they would have done anyway so i also think the incentives sometimes make a lot more difference lower in the organization so
0: Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us here today. Uh, go to focuscompounding.com if you're watching right now on YouTube. Uh, you could sign up and get access to investment write ups by Jeff. Uh, we have a free content section on this website that a lot of people like going all the way back to 2005. All of Jeff's old write ups, uh, you could get them right there, www.focuscompounding.com. Uh, thank you so much for all of the support. Make sure you hit the subscribe button both on YouTube and the podcast side of things. If you want to get access to QuickFS, the software that we use every single day to pull financial data, Uh, go to quickfs.net and tell them during checkout that you came from Focus Compounding. Thank you so much for all the support, and we will see you in the next podcast.